This is episode number 93, How to Train for the Heat, part one with Dr. Stephen Chung. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The main message I want to get across is heat is an additional stress. So, you know, if you say you can only handle 10 units a day, and if your interval workout takes up, nine to 10 units of that and you're adding another two three units of heat that's not a good thing whereas if you are doing an easier recovery day where there's only two training units and you're adding another two that's not too bad heat is an extra stress that you have to adapt to and accommodate in your training plan and i'm so stoked that you guys are here this has been an awesome month of podcasting with a really diverse set of guests And I'm pretty excited about this two-part series that I am putting out. Today is part one, and next week will also be part two. And I don't know if you are signed up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. You can sign up on my website or go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. But I just sent out a newsletter yesterday talking about my 24 hours of Old Pueblo co-ed duo win and also announcing that I'm racing the Cape Epic, which is an eight-day mountain bike stage race in South Africa. And it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, stage races in the world. And the biggest challenge with the Cape Epic is, well, it's twofold. It's the distance this early in the season. And it's going to be interesting for me because I'm basically doing almost all of my training inside on my indoor trainer in preparation for this race. And the heat is also an issue because it's hot and a lot of us, especially Europeans and North Americans, we're coming straight from winter. So I've heard lots of stories of people melting down in the heat. I personally have raced in the heat quite a bit in the Sahara Desert, in Costa Rica, in Brazil, and I have felt the effects of heat exhaustion pretty substantially, and I've never specifically trained for the heat. So I was pretty excited to learn that you could train for the heat and that there's a lot of research out there There's a lot of conflicting research too. So trying to figure out what is the best protocol for me and what's going to be the best thing I can do with the amount of time that I have has been great. And fortunately in town in Kelowna here where I live, there is an amazing physiologist named Dr. Stephen Chung, who I'll introduce in a few moments. And also you've heard from Dr. Andrew Sellers from Balance Point Racing And Balance Point Racing, they also have a lot of assessment tools and a brilliant coach and physiologist named Luke Wei and another coach who has done lots of heat um, heat training and heat racing named Stacey Shan. She's done the Badwater. She's done Marathon de Sab. She's raced in Costa Rica. So I have a great team around me who's helping me design this protocol so that I can go to South Africa and have minimal performance detriments from the heat. So my entry to Cape Epic was a little bit late. I found out the week of the 24 hours of Old Pueblo, which was exciting and also a little bit of a shock because I only had a couple, I only have a couple of weeks left to prepare. So with my training, there's nothing really that I can do to prep for this race other than the heat training. I mean, I can keep training the way I have been, but recovering from the 24 hours of Old Pueblo will take actually up to a couple of weeks. And then I leave basically the week after. So I'm trying to get recovered from the race. I'm trying to work on my heat acclimation and trying to maximize that as best as I can. 
So fortunately, Dr. Stephen Chung is in town. He is on sabbatical and he is not only a well of knowledge on the topic of environmental physiology, but he is also an avid cyclist himself. He's worked with people like Amber Nieben, helping her train for the heat for the Olympics. So the guy is amazing and he has so much knowledge. He's a professor at Brock University in the Department of Kinesiology. He is also an author of the textbook, Advanced Environmental Physiology, which I'm actually going to get. If you're not familiar with the topic of environmental physiology, it expands far more than just heat. It's all the different environmental elements that could affect our performance or even just affect our health for workers working in hot conditions, cold conditions, altitude, underwater. So I think this textbook is going to be pretty cool. He's also the author of the books Cutting Edge Cycling and Cycling Science. And if that doesn't keep him busy enough, he is the sports science and training editor at Pez Cycling News, which you guys might be familiar with. In this episode, you'll learn how motivational self-talk can make a difference while training and racing in the heat. You'll hear about different training protocols and how to make it work for you and what you should actually be focusing on with all the different data out there how many days you need to train in the heat and exactly how to do it and how long the effects of training will last. And you'll even hear tidbits on Dr. Chung's work with the Canadian national team in preparation for the 2020 Olympics in Japan, where it will be hot and humid. We also talk about if you need to change your protocol for dry heat versus humid heat. I also want to give you guys a shout out to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. And the link is patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And it's a place where you can financially support my work. Even three to $4 a month makes a massive difference. I have an amazing team that helps me get this show up and running every single week. I have Roma, who is my podcast editor and engineer. And I have Tina Lochesca, who is my assistant helping me with bookings and a bunch of other things with my business. So any support you guys can give would be really awesome. A perk of being a Patreon member is that you can submit questions to my guests. So in advance, I type in on the, it's kind of like a social media site. I type in and put an update who my guest is and what the topic is. And my Patreon members can send in a question and then I say their name on the show and ask the question on behalf of them. So that's a pretty cool perk. Something else that you might be interested in before we get into it is that I have my Plant Power Tribe cookbook. It's an e-cookbook and it's coming out this week. So I'll be sending out a newsletter next week about it, but it has over 20 recipes that are my own and they're focused on ease and performance. So they're quick, they're easy, and they're super healthy, and they taste good. We've put a lot of work into getting this cookbook out there. It's a really decent price. It's $9.99, so very, very well-priced. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Currently, I have it up on moxieandgrit.com, which is permanent home, but I'm trying to figure out how to integrate that into sonyalooney.com. There's a lot of things you can do with websites. And I don't want to turn sonyalooney.com into an e-commerce site. So I'm just trying to figure out the best way to sell this cookbook. And also, if you're interested in plant-based nutrition and healthy lifestyle, I have a free Facebook group, Plant Power Tribe on Facebook. So just go in there, type in Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. And it's also Plant Power Tribe on Instagram. 
And you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat plant-based and just adding in more plant-based meals will make you healthier. So if you're looking for recipes or tips or just information and, and a community of awesome people, we have over 1400 people in our Facebook group. Thanks again for sharing the show with your friends. It's been really fun to see on Instagram and on Facebook and Twitter, and even from your messages that you've been sending me directly. I really appreciate the support. I love it. I love sharing it. That way everybody else can see what you're enjoying about the show as well. And that's the best way to help this grow, to help get the word out there. So if you don't mind leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, it literally takes five seconds or less. And just sharing the show with your friends by word of mouth, by social media, any way you can. That is super helpful. And I really, really appreciate that. All right, let's get into part one of heat adaptation training with Dr. Stephen Chung. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to the recording studio in my fancy living room. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so cool that you're here in Kelowna on sabbatical and that you chose Kelowna to come to. Where do you normally live? I'm normally a professor at Brock University, which is in St. Catharines in Ontario near Niagara Falls for 11 years. And so when this sabbatical came along, I want to say, I want to go play for a year. And so where was a great place? Kelowna. It's fabulous. Just love it here. Our whole family in terms of all the outdoor activities. So we're getting a lot of work done, but at the same time, we're having a lot of fun together too. Yeah, work hard, play hard. Absolutely. So what made you decide to go into this field? Like what what was your PhD research in and what has guided you and in your interests moving forward? Well, to answer that, I actually have to go back to my undergrad. My undergrad was in oceanography. So I've had zero background throughout my undergrad in exercise and humans or anything like that. Uh, around the start of my undergrad, I really got into bike racing after watching Steve Bauer in the 84 Olympics, who actually is a neighbor of mine now. And um, <laughs> we ride together, so it's cool. <laughs> but the cool. So I was racing a lot and I finished a degree in oceanography. And then when I decided to go back to grad school, eventually become a researcher, I wanted to do something that had more of a personal connection or appeal to me in addition to the academic appeal. So I switched to biology for my master's at Simon Fraser. And then I moved over to do my PhD at University of Toronto and did it in conjunction with the with the military. And we were looking at extreme heat. And especially this was in the mid 90s, the first Gulf War was just finished. And but there was a lot of fear or risk of soldiers exercising in the heat while wearing very heavy impermeable combat clothing and chemical protection clothing. So my work there was all about exercise in the heat, the effects of clothing, the effects of physiology and some potential countermeasures. So that led me more into this field. And so since I started as an independent scientist, I started at Dalhousie University in 98. And then I moved to Brock in 2007. And so my work really swings evenly between extreme heat and extreme cold. And there's always been a huge kind of applied occupational basis to it too, both with athletes, but also with everybody from Toronto Fire Service to, again, the military, to right now I have a big project with the Ultra Deep Mining Network in northern Ontario because they're extremely hot down there, two, three kilometers underground, 
rocks are at 60 degrees Celsius. The chambers are about 40 degrees. The miners are working in, so we're looking at how to improve their performance too. So, is there a lot of crossover between that type of research to athletic performance, or is it different? Absolutely, I look at workers as athletes in their own way. Right, they have to perform day after day in extreme conditions and extreme environments. There is not necessarily the same pressure to, in essence, be at peak performance, but there is huge risk of occupational injuries and loss of productivity and individual health and safety. So. They, in many ways, like I say, I treat them as athletes, and I think there is a lot of crossover. It's not as if athletes and workers in the heat thermal regulate differently. There's not different kind of physical pathways or anything for each population. They're all the same. So, one of the things I really love about my work is, you know, in in my lab we do a lot of cutting edge, really basic. Mechanistic research, but we also get a chance to take that very mechanistic research and apply it right away to a population. And then we also get to do the reverse. We get to take a very applied project, like what my PhD was on with the Canadian military, and then also build really good basic fundamental science out of it. So it's a really seamless transition, and I find that really entertaining. So I'd love to break down the different ways that our body overheats and affects our performance and our cognition. I know you have done a lot of work in that area, and it'd be really fascinating to hear about how that's broken down. Yeah, well, the body has four main ways of getting rid of heat or exchanging heat from the environment. Breaking down into very simple terms, there's three of them: radiative, conductive, and convective heat loss that are what we call dry. Heat exchange, and they really rely on the difference in temperature between your body and the environment. So the temperature gradient, and then the fourth way is evaporation, is your sweating, and that doesn't rely on the temperature gradient as much, but it relies more on the water vapor pressure gradient, the amount of humidity in the air. So that's why you have a big difference between dry heat and kind of hot and humid. Conditions and the latter can be much, much more challenging because not only is your dry heat exchange impaired because of the high temperatures, but also the air is so saturated that you are sweating more, but it's not necessarily evaporating because the air can't hold anymore. So both of those. Dry and wet pathways are being impaired, so that's the big challenge in hot and humid conditions. And some of the work I'm doing right now is with a number of the Canadian national teams is to get ready for Tokyo in 2020, which is going to be extremely hot and extremely humid. And that's the big challenge again, above and beyond conditions that may be in the desert or during the Tour of Spain and in cycling in September, where it can be very hot, but it's relatively dry, so you get a bit more. Yeah, we did a race in Costa Rica once. It's a hundred mile mountain bike race, and it goes through many microclimates. So, for part of the race, you're in the hot, humid jungle, and then for part of the race, you're in the dry, hot areas. And a lot of people got heat stroke, self, and that was probably one of the worst times I ever had it. I looked down at my、uh, power meter, and it said 100 watts, and I thought that the power meter was broken, and really, I was broken. But、yeah. um, whenever somebody's starting to get heat stroke or heat exhaustion on on the bike specifically, 
how can they realize it's happening and what should they do in that situation? We were going to talk about how to prepare so this doesn't happen, but Mm -hmm. once you're already in it, my biggest thing is like, I don't know when to quit and I keep going and that could cause some serious damage. Yeah, heat illness kind of encompasses a wide range of kind of symptoms and also pathologies. But at the most basic is your body is too hot and there's no single threshold of kind of core temperature that is dangerous for everyone. There is a physical limit above 42, 43 degrees Celsius, your cells are just going to start breaking down. So the physical limit, which everybody, regardless of who they are, is going to be in trouble. But in terms of both kind of the mind and body, how much can I handle in terms of temperature versus another individual? A lot of it comes down to individual background and also the, um, your acclimatization state, which we'll talk about. And again, there's a whole host. So that's why I don't necessarily advocate that there is a single temperature, like 39 degrees Celsius, that is dangerous because there was a really nice study tracking half marathon runners in Singapore, which actually I was just in in January, but they were tracking core temperatures of the marathoners and they found that almost all of them of these 18 individuals they tracked had core temperatures within half an hour of over 40 celsius which in my research i'm not even allowed to take individuals in the lab because of ethics so they were able to sustain that 40 degrees for an hour hour and a half over very, very hot and humid conditions. So typically you'll find that the fitter you are, the more acclimated you are, the higher core temperature you can handle. Now, is that due to training? Is that due to differences in physiento? That's the real thing that we're myself and a lot of other scientists are trying to tease out. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about the mental side of it because There's the perception of effort, also the perception of effort saying, yeah, like this is really hard and I I feel bad, but being able to deal with that discomfort and some people can deal with discomfort of being too hot or too tired or whatever, way more than other people. So where is the line of perception of effort causing people to slow down or the line of someone feeling terrible, but just saying, I'm just going to keep going? I would say the way I kind of describe the physical and the psychology, kind of the mind and the body is, as I said earlier, everybody has a limit. You know, there is no way you can push yourself beyond a certain physical limit because when breaking down. So that's the pure kind of ceiling, for example, and that, but what the mind really is very plastic about is how close to that absolute danger threshold you're willing to take yourself to and you know are you willing to go right at absolute limit or you know or does that discomfort stop you well ahead of time i would say for most of us there's a big kind of gap in in terms of that warning kind of zone between where you start feeling really uncomfortable and where you're at true physical danger. The analogy is kind of like um, your gas 
gauge in your car. If you're, you let your gas get too low, the yellow light comes on. And so that's kind of your first warning. And then, you know, some of us really will take it down. Well, we can still drive another 100 <laughs> kilometers with it. And there's no big problem. Another very first sign will say, no, I got to stop for gas right now, you know, when they see that yellow light. So that's kind of how I like to see it as an analogy. You got that hard physical limit, you're gassy. There's a warning. And how much do you listen to that warning? That's really where the mind comes in. That's where your kind of all the feedback you get from your body, your experience. If you've had a really negative experience with heat stress or heat stroke before, you'll probably air words. I'm going to stop, you know, sooner rather than if you've never experienced it before, then you're probably willing to push yourself a little harder. So that's how I like to see it the difference between a hard ceiling that we just can't get past, but also how close we're willing to push. And a lot of the interventions that we'll talk about, whether we're talking about acclimation or, you know, somehow uh, is really just, you know, adjusting that psychology a bit. Yeah. I think we should talk about that now, like motivational self-talk aspect during the period where you're trying to acclimatize. Mm-hmm. So some of this work really started in the mid-2000s with Martin Barwood from the UK. It was his PhD work at the University of Portsmouth. And what he looked at was a really broad-based sports psychology package and how it affected people's ability to perform in the heat. So what he was had trained, but not necessarily elite runners, uh, run in the lab on a treadmill for 90 minutes as long as they can, or as fast as cover as much distance as they can. And then they had two groups. One was a control group. You know, they went off, did their normal training, came back two weeks later, 90 minute treadmill run. And then the other group, they had a, again, a very broad based psychological training package that they worked through. Uh, and when I say it was very broad, there wasn't one just key focus. They looked at everything from goal setting, visualization, positive self-talk, and, you know, kind of mental imagery, all of these different things. And, but the key was to really improve their tolerance to the heat. And the interesting thing was after the two weeks of dedicated training, again, no difference in physiology. They, they tested them physically afterwards, VO max, uh, aerobic capacity and things like that. No difference, but in the heat the group was able to run over a kilometer farther over those 90 minutes. So really significant. And, um, Martin also did some really nice, again, this motivational work, not just in the heat, but also looking at what happens if people fall into cold water, can they hold their breath longer? Can they resist this kind of hyperventilation more if they had the psychology training? And he found that was effective a little bit. So it again, shows the power of the mind. So one of the things we did with my master's student, Phil Wallace, uh, the paper was published in 2017. Of those four interventions that Martin had, we focused on motivational self-talk and its effect on performance in the heat. We had, instead of a time trial, we had them ride at a very hard in the heat for and at a steady pace and told them to hang on as long as and until they can't go anymore and they quit. And then we had again the control group that just we sent them home and trained for two weeks. And then we had a motivational skills group. And what we did with them was really focus on reframing 
negative thoughts about heat into his words that were more motivating for them. So it may be, you know, I hate this. I'm sweating so much. This sucks. And reframing that into, you know, keep pushing, doing well, you know, and we had them practice that, individualize their cues and everything. And again, we tested them afterwards. Uh, physically, no difference in terms of their physical capacity. Uh, the control group had no change in their tolerance to the heat, but the experimental group was able to go 25% longer in the heat. We deliberately chose this ride as for this pace as long as you can model instead of a time trial because we want to give them only two options, stop or go stop or keep going you know there was no well i'll just keep going but i'll ride a little bit easier it was just stop or go and then the other interesting aspect of it was when we asked them throughout to rate the perceived exertion how hard is it wasn't as if the motivational skills training made the work any easier they both got to really really hard uh at the same time uh, before and after the skills training. But what the skills group was able to do was put up with that discomfort at 19 for much longer. And that was actually what accounted for the 25% improvement. So make things easier. It just made you willing to push through it and keep that discomfort for longer. They were also, you know, willing to tolerate a higher core temperature at the end. So that was really neat. Got a lot of play in uh, in the mass media too, and uh, and I think what that really suggests is again the plasticity of the mind and the power of the mind, and how peak performance and really elite performance isn't just about the physiology. These were kind of club level cyclists, but they weren't necessarily untrained individuals. They were area cyclists who competed locally and but they weren't elite either. I would hazard to say even elite individuals would benefit too. And uh, so I'm looking at you as as oh, I'm oh, saying I'm, this. I'm just laughing because um, <laughs> I've worked really hard on building a strong mindset in difficult conditions. And I've exposed myself many times to extreme heat and extreme cold around the world. So I've seen at the elite level, people who were doing really well physically and when the conditions changed, they just mentally could not have it, melted down and it was over for them. And it was, it was amazing for me to watch because physically they were still the same person. It's just the conditions changes. So their like attitude towards the rain, the cold or the hot, and they just like would quit. And I, I couldn't believe it because it just seems so crazy to me that you are there and you have all the physical ability, but your mind, you're just saying, I can't do this. This is too much. Oh, absolutely. It's an uh, experience I've seen over and over. And and despite my studying the cold, I'm not a huge fan of it, I, especially when out cycling, uh, those kind of two, three degrees Celsius, cold, windy, gray days, they just kill me. And yeah, so I definitely shut down in those conditions, whereas I tend to thrive more in warmer conditions and in the heat. And yeah, everybody, I don't know whether it's a combination of individual, again, experiences, but certainly culture as a role, you know, people from cold countries generally do a lot better in the cold than people who, you know, grew up in very warm and countries. And, um, Again, I was just in Singapore, and now I delight in sending my Singaporean friends pictures of Canada in the winter and, <laughs> and the uh, temperature gauge and 
they just can't fathom it. If they've never experienced it before, they, they're really not ready for it. Again, when I say the mind is so plastic, one of the challenges, it cuts both ways. You can really push through the something that's unknown or a challenge, or it can really defeat you. And a really nice study was by in, in Wales. And what he did was he had two groups. One group was just was told, you're going to ride a four kilometer time trial on the bike and you're going to do it four times. You're going to get full feedback. You're going to see your power output, you know, how much time is left, all of that stuff. And so that was the control group. And then he had another group that had no feedback. All they were told was you're going to ride a time trial four times today, given feedback of any. And so as you would expect, the group that got full feedback, their performance was bang on. You know, like uh, no difference really between the four conditions. And what I found super fascinating is that the group that had no feedback, again, remember, they didn't even know the lay their first time. Obviously, they were very conservative because they had no knowledge. And so their time was much longer. But by the third and fourth time, they had plateaued their time and their time was the same as the group with the full feedback. I found that super fascinating because it tells me that the mind is so quick to learn and that can be a good or a bad thing. It can be a really bad thing is if I learn I don't like this, I had a bad experience, whether it's in the heat or I don't like the 12-hour race, I like the 24-hour race better. If you really have this mindset that you don't like something or something isn't motivating, you know, you've already lost the game. And uh, so it really plays into that. And what the challenge really is for coaches and athletes is to find ways to break through that kind of mental barrier more than the physical barrier. And again, Alex Hutchinson talks about his and his book, kind of his big light bulb moment where he had never been able to run at this distance before. And then he was at a university meet where he thought for sure timekeepers were calling out incorrect splits and he ended up running way faster than he ever could because he believed that he was on, on that comes out time and time again the literature also shows that if you deceive an athlete they will kind of really match their expectations for example there's been studies done looking at uh, you know people riding at a power output and then doing a time trial and then the next day they come back and then they're told to ride the same time trial, but the power output, the power meter was deliberately skewed so that it was reading kind of 2% higher or 2% lower. And lo and behold, if it's 2% higher, you know, they'll match it and they'll actually ride there. And whereas if it was lower, they will kind of go to it and they will kind of match the kind of deceptive signals. So again, it's all so much of elite performance is really in the mind. You have to train your body. You have to get to the ability to physically be able to do something. Big step is really control you can. Yeah. Even situations like I was saying, there's times where people just quit and everybody falters. It's hard for everybody. And you're not going to be able to just be bulletproof mentally every single time you put yourself out there. And I think it's important to not be too hard on yourself when that happens. 
but also to figure out what went wrong. So a fun example is that I, I had some preparation for was I started doing some heat training for Cape Epic, the doing a 24-hour race. So I had already started. I knew the 24-hour race was going to be cold because I've done duo 24-hour racing and, and for, even four-person. We had no RV. The temperatures got down to much colder than it's down to minus six. So you're wet. You go from like full sweat to stopped and freezing and shivering violently. And I knew this was going to happen for weeks leading up to this 24-hour race. Asturbated even more because I had already been doing stuff to raise my core temperature. But Matt and I, my husband, going into this race, I kept saying, like, I am dreading this race. I am dreading how cold I'm going to be, the sleep deprivation. Like, it's just going to be awful because I knew what to expect and I, I know how uncomfortable it would be. And it was helpful because he would just say, just deal with it. Like, you know how to do this. So when I was shivering violently in my sleeping bag in the back of the car, instead of saying, oh my God, so cold. I hate this. This is horrible. How am I ever going to go out for another lap? I actually focused on waiting for that moment whenever your body stops shivering and then just taking in that. And I'm a little bit off topic here, but whenever things are like really hard, looking for just something positive to hang on to can help you get through it. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, that's again, where experience can both be a good thing and a bad thing, <laughs> right? It's, uh, again, it's, if it's been a positive experience, then, you know, you have that confidence. I've dealt with this before. If, like you say, it's a negative experience, then, you know, yes, you can dread it. Or like you say, you can try to focus on, okay, what are these little victories I can do? What is, you know, I've experienced this before. It's very uncomfortable, but I know last time. <laughs> I know I can still perform. I may not be ideal, but I can still function. So, you know, you just have to dig yourself out of that mental trap in that hole and however it works for you. you know, again, everyone is different in terms of what coping strategy works best for them. Some may, you know, rant and rave and yell and, and need to do that to kind of hype themselves up. Others may, like you say, look for those small victories, look for that, okay, I've dealt with this. I know I can handle it one step at a time like what is the next thing i just have to get through the next lap or i just have to focus on the next task i need to do to get ready it could be as simple as that to forget that big picture and just go on what's the next thing i need to do and not worry about in a sense how uncomfortable i am yeah so i would love to get into how to come up with your own heat acclimatization is it acclimation or acclimation there's now two, you, two now you're going to make me nerd out. Those uh, are two different definitions. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if, if I haven't already nerded everyone out already. <laughs> We're nerds here. We like yeah. it. <laughs> Acclimation is if I threw you into my heat chamber, so it's an artificial kind of stimulus. Acclimatization is if I took you to Costa Rica or Singapore where you're in the natural environment. So that's the official definition, but most people can comfortably use it interchangeably. And the overall, the third definition, the third thing to go in that we've been focusing on so far is the term habituation, which is really talking about more your perceptual cues and your perceived kind of stimulus or stress rather than the physical stress. So acclimation, acclimatization is more about the physiology. Habituation is more about the psychology. And together they are all in this big umbrella of adaptation. Okay, so from the physiology side, there's a lot of different protocols out there. 
Some say, oh, you only need five to seven days and you only need to go into the sauna after a workout. Some of them say you need to dehydrate yourself. Some of them, so like there's a bunch of different protocols with different time lengths and different ways to do it. So in your experience, what would be like one or two examples of ways that people could acclimate to dry heat? Okay, uh, sure. Let's talk about dry heat first. I'm very pragmatic. You can nerd out a ton in terms of different kind of acclimation strategies and the stimulus that you need. But the main thing the body needs as a stimulus to adapt to heat is to get your core temperature high and to keep it high for a decent period of time. And I would define decent as an hour to 90 minutes a day, kind of as a minimum. But how you get your body hot, I don't think the body really knows. It's not as if your kidneys actually say, oh, well, you actually ex- you actually got me hot by exercise or you got me hot by wearing clothes in a sauna. The body doesn't really know. So don't worry about necessarily the ideal method. The main thing is to get your body warm, warmer than normal, and try to keep it warm for, again, about 60 to 90 minutes. The how hot do you need to get? I would, if you're actually able to measure core temperature, I would say the ideal would probably be about 38 and a half degree core temperature. Our normal resting body temperature is about 37, so raise it about a degree and a half. And so again, degree and a half for about an hour to 90 minutes a day. How long do you need? There has been very effective acclimation or acclimatization protocols as short as four to five days. But it's one of those cases here where a little bit is good, but more is better. So four to five days is probably the minimum that you're going to see adaptations in things like a lower heart rate, a lower core temperature, but you're not really going to start seeing sweat rate improve in terms of the amount of sweat that you can produce until really about into close to the end of two weeks. So there is, for different parts of your body and different physiological responses, there is a different time frame. Again, you will see a lower heart rate, you'll see slight improvements in your plasma volume, so you have more kind of blood volume to circulate. That will cause a lower heart rate. Your core temperature will drop within about four to five days. But if you can get over to two weeks, it'll drop more. And uh, whereas with sweating rate, four to five days isn't really going to improve it. So if you really want to maximize your adaptation, I would say you really want to get close to 10 to 14 days of, of that stimulus. And they should be fairly consecutive. It's not a case of, well, I can just, you know, go into sauna or whatever or exercise in the heat one day and I'll come back five days later and I'll do that 10 times. It is really something that you need day after day so that the body gets trained to that stimulus and uh, and adapts itself appropriately. There's a number of ways you can adapt. The very simplest way, if you have absolutely nothing else, is go train in more clothes. So if you are running, let's say in, we're in the middle of winter here in Kelowna and, and um, 
if you're riding outside or you're running, you know, you're not going to be really adapting to heat. But if you're able to run on a treadmill or ride on an indoor bike, you'll naturally get hotter. You'll get even hotter if you don't turn a fan on. So that's one easy way to drive your temperature up and or else even wear more clothes on top of that. So that's one way to do it. Another way is with passive exposure. So you can do that by sitting in a sauna, sitting in a steam room. I would say that is harder to do because it is much easier to raise your core temperature with exercise than it is just with a hot tub or, or with a sauna or steam room. It takes you much longer and the body just doesn't like it as much. So it will always be trying to get you back to normal temperature. So it will fight it a lot more. So I would say just sitting in a sauna for 30 minutes without doing any exercise probably isn't nearly as effective as exercising so that you are already hot and then going into the sauna or a hot tub right away while your body is warm so that you are already warm and the, and that passive heat is just adding to it and maintaining that heat. That is the most effective way to use passive heat exposure. And then obviously the ideal thing to do is to combine everything to exercise in the heat itself to um, whether you are able to go for a hot weather training camp or whether you are able to get into a heat chamber and exercise. So those are kind of three broad categories. Don't overthink it too much. Main thing is try to get your body hot and keep it hot. Yeah. And I think that whenever somebody hears that, at least me, it's like, okay, I'm going to wear all my clothes on the, on the bike, on the trainer. So I actually did that and I overcooked myself. I had like no fan. I turned the temperature up in the garage at 25. I had leg warmers. I had three layers on, including a down jacket and a hat. And I was doing an interval workout, like <laughs> yeah. what you're not supposed to do. And it, I wasn't able to get a very good workout. Like I finished the workout, but there was lots of breaks that were happening. And then I was, my recovery was really terrible after that. It took me like four days to recover from that. Yeah. And that's where I would tweak <laughs> that program a little bit. I'm a big believer in there's a difference between kind of the heat adaptation. Uh, remember that heat is an additional stress. It's an additional stressor on your body above and beyond your training. So if you are already doing a super hard workout and you're doing it in the heat, you are not going to do it optimally. You're not going to be able to have as high a power output. You're not going to be able to do as many intervals. So you end up compromising your actual training. So what I generally suggest is that for your really peak, important, hard interval workouts, do them in the optimal environment so that you get the optimal training stimulus, metabolic stress, all of that, and not worry about heat in those days. Whereas I would layer on the heat kind of adaptation days onto those kind of longer, easier rides where, you know, you're really just putting in the miles, putting in the time and the stress is lower so you can afford to add that heat stress. And the other thing we can do, and this was when I worked with Amber Neben from the U.S. who won the, uh, the World's Women Time Trial Championships in Qatar in 2016, when I was working with her and her coach on adapting the program, that was one of the questions. Should 
she'd be doing the hard intervals while wearing a lot of clothing or in the heat or whatever. And I says, no, like I'd rather her do them optimally. And, uh, but if she had, let's say a four hour ride where she was going to do her intervals in the first two hours, and then she's just going to kind of continue endurance ride for the second two hours, I would have her do those in the optimal conditions, you know, her normal training clothing, do them as optimally as possible. And then after the intervals, put on a ton of clothing and then ride easy for the additional time to again maintain that temperature so that's one way that you could kind of layer on heat adaptation to the uh, hard days but even then i would only do it sparingly i would much rather have athletes you know do the easy ride with the heat so that you get the double stimulus and then with the hard rides do them perfectly kind of in optimally and then in terms of recovering from the hard rides like if you do the hard ride dressed optimally cooled whatever the next day you're back in the heat is that going to affect your recovery from the hard ride and are you gonna have to adjust your training for that probably depends on the intensity of the previous ride and also your training status if you are highly fit and you know you can recover quickly then probably not uh it's probably not going to affect you kind of having a heat load the next day but if you are relatively unfit and you're not really recovered optimally the next day then yeah adding the heat load maybe next year so the main thing i guess the main message i want to get across is heat is an additional stress so you know if you have if you say your training load is you can only handle 10 units a day. And if your interval workout takes up nine to 10 units of that, and you're adding another two, three units of heat, that's not a good thing. Whereas if you are doing an easier recovery day where there's only two training units and you're adding another two, that's not too bad, right? So really think about it that way. That heat is an extra stress that you have to adapt to and accommodate in your training plan. And then what about the dehydration aspect? Um, I know in, we've, we've mentioned this before, but in Stacey Sims book, Roar, she says, don't drink anything going into the sauna and then only rehydrate very slowly coming out. How important is the hydration piece? It's still somewhat controversial, the kind of the interaction between um, hydration and heat adaptation. Andrew Garrett in 2014 in New Zealand, uh, who had the same supervisor as Stacy, or was at the same university as Stacy did her PhD in at the University of Otago. Andrew did a study looking at short-term heat adaptation of four to five days. And in one group, they had normally hydrating, you know, drinking throughout the heat adaptation protocol. Another group, didn't drink and uh, they they rehydrated afterwards but they didn't drink drink during and they found that there was a kind of a synergistic interaction between the dehydration and the heat adaptation and that the dehydration group had faster rates of heat adaptation so that was one kind of study suggesting and that's probably what stacy was referring to some of those studies there have also been other studies kind of saying maybe not so the jury is still really out um but i think what that that point raises is again the importance of or the dangers or challenges of doing a really hard workout 
and then going jumping right into a sauna for example or jumping into a hot tub afterwards because if you spend those 30 minutes there you're dehydrating further and you're probably not necessarily drinking adequately or really focused on whether it's nutritional recovery or hydration or doing other kind of recovery things you need because you're sitting in a room for you know in essence doing nothing for an extra 30 minutes to 60 minutes so that's another reason why i would kind of be hesitant about putting the heat load on the really hot days there's a time and a place for it remember we've been talking all about the power of the mind so you may have the hard workout the race simulation workout in a neutral environment and then you throw in heat stress another day there are some times that you need to put everything together just to say oh yeah okay i am able to do a hard workout or i am able to you know do this race simulation in the heat but i would be really really sparing with that okay and in terms of time in the sauna or the hot tub how long do you need to spend in there? Because I've seen different times and I've also seen different temperatures of what's ideal. Again, it depends on if you've exercised beforehand. If you've exercised beforehand, then I would say you probably only need about 30 minutes. And uh, because you're already hot, you're just maintaining the temperature. If you just walk right into your gym and uh, sit in the sauna, it'll probably take you much longer. 60, it can be anywhere from 30 minutes before your core temperature really rises to any significant degree. So you're going to need to be in there for much longer. Everyone's individual. Also, the first few days, you're going to get hotter much faster because you're not sweating as much. So later on in your heat adaptation, you know, the sauna is going to be much easier. So if you are not exercising beforehand, you go into a sauna, you'll be sweating a lot more. It'll take you longer to heat up. So, you know, the first day, it might only take you 30 minutes to really be sweating profusely. You know, two weeks in, it'll probably take you 60 minutes or more, you know, to get that same equivalent, really, really heavy, heavy sweating going. So it's really hard to say it, your body changes and adapts. Right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of the heat adaptation that probably gets us into talking about how do we know that, or how do we adjust our workload during a heat adaptation? Probably the simplest thing to do is base it on something like heart rate if you have a heart rate monitor and on those heat adaptation days if you are you know in the trainer and just wearing extra clothing just do an easy endurance ride and base it on heart rate because you know as you become more adapted remember your heart rate drops generally so you'll automatically ride harder to get the same kind of thermal stimulus. So that's probably the easiest way. And again, it's the most logistically easy too. You know, people don't, don't necessarily measure their core temperature every single ride, uh, don't have access to the equipment, but most people have a heart rate monitor or you have your, just your subjective feeling. If you're very familiar with a scale like the ratings of perceived exertion, whether it's the zero to 10 scale or the six to 20, you can just go, ride at that kind of set feel and automatically as you become more adapted you will automatically be increasing your workload and to maintain that same thermal stimulus and i'm just gonna use myself as an example so i live about a seven minute drive away from the gym mm -hmm. so if i am on the trainer and then i get off the trainer change clothes and go to the gym is that too much time 
for the like will the core temperature have dropped too much for the sauna to make a difference there's probably simple things you can do to um you know again it's not perfectly ideal but the way to deal with it is just uh, as soon as you get off you know wear a ton of clothes and do whatever you can to keep your body temperature warm and then get into the gym and the sauna as soon as possible so yeah you can get around it i would experiment with dehydrating yourself too or not drinking as much because that's also going to raise your core temperature more over the course of a ride so that might be an additional way to kind of drive that thermal stimulus higher and what about using like i have a space heater i thought about using the space heater is that a little too extreme (laughs) it depends on how much heating bills uh you like to uh, pay but (laughs) You can be really inventive at Dalhousie for my entire nine-year scientific career there, my high-tech environmental chamber with shower curtains and space heaters. So uh, I got some really high-quality science done with that. So that's something to experiment with, whether you, you can really create your own heat chamber just with a space heater or two and get some shower curtains and rig it up around your trainer if you really want want the full experience i've i've had amazing uh results just doing that and one of my patreon subscribers patreon's a crowdfunding site where people mm-hmm. can donate money to the show um, a guy named Stephen collins asks about the duration like after how long did the benefits of this heat training start to diminish and i think that was a great question sure I'm going to take the roundabout way to answer that. The first question is probably the, I will first answer that question with another scenario. The question is, okay, if you've become heat adapted, does that benefit you in, if you know you're going to compete in a a normal temperature or cooler environment? My feeling is that heat adaptation adapts you to heat it doesn't necessarily adapt you to a cooler environment. So it's not like altitude training where we generally know if you go train at altitude, your body responds, making more red blood cells. And then when you come back to sea level, you have more red blood cells and you can compete better. And at sea level, it's not really the same with heat. There is one kind of well-designed lab study that shows that, yeah, there may be improvements in your kind of normal temperature performance after heat adaptation. But there was also a good field study where they took cyclists from Denmark, took them to Denmark to Qatar for two weeks of training, and they tracked their their time trial performance over those two weeks. And they found that after two weeks, their performance got to the same level as before they left when they were in Denmark in a cooler environment. Then they took them back and had them do a time trial again and found even though they were super heat adapted, they had higher plasma volume, you know, lower resting heart rate and everything, their performance back in uh, Denmark didn't improve. So I would say the jury is still out on whether you can actually benefit from heat adaptation when you go back to a cooler environment, I would lean towards no. So to answer that question of, okay, well, if I do go back to a, to a cooler environment, how long kind of 
and I, but I still know I need to compete in the heat. How long can that last? Hein Donen, my colleague and friend in the Netherlands, did a review on the existing studies, and he showed that probably if he did nothing, if he had no more heat exposure, probably about two weeks again, you're going to lose most of those adaptations. But the good news is, if he found studies that shows if you just had one heat stimulus every four to five days over that time, you can sustain it for quite a good period of time of about um, of about a month or more. So that's really good news, especially in your case, if you're getting rid of Cape Epic and you're getting heat adapted here, but then in the final two weeks, let's say you really want to taper for your event, you know, so you don't want to be adding that heat stress every single day during your taper. So again, the same thing I'm advising Canadian uh, athletes as they get ready for Tokyo is, you know, get heat adapted beforehand. And then those kind of two to three weeks of your taper, don't worry about heat adaptation, just every, you know, four to five days, expose yourself to heat a bit, and then that will help to sustain you. And then when you get to the hot environment, you'll still be good to go. So again, my very big picture view is I would like to see, again, with athletes going to Tokyo, I would like to see them become fully adapted in those, uh, you know, six weeks out to two weeks out before they compete at Tokyo. And then they would travel to Tokyo. They would be naturally exposed to heat anyways, but during those periods of time where they're tapering, I would generally want them to avoid heat stress on a day-to-day level. Just have it kind of every four days just to keep that stimulus going, and uh, but otherwise stay away from the heat. You want to be at your optimal level. Uh, you want to be maximally recovered, so you don't want kind of daily heat stress on top of that. Yeah, actually coming home from the 24 hour race, I went immediately back into heat training and I noticed over the course of the week, I was getting worse and worse and worse instead of recovering and getting better. So I had to pull the rip cord and spend the last three days not training and not exposing myself to heat. And now I'm starting to finally feel better. So the recovery, I noticed it was affecting that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really kind of more of a logistical challenge of heat adaptation of when to schedule it. You know, how best to schedule it, how to schedule it during your taper, how it's going to affect your recovery. One really good mentality I like to have is, you know, your today's training is also about tomorrow. You know, you want to be do enough work that's quality and fits your goal, but you're also thinking one step ahead of how is this going to affect me for tomorrow? Because tomorrow I need to train and what is my goal for tomorrow? And like we talked about earlier, if we know tomorrow is going to be a really, really intense hard day, well, we want to maybe ratchet down the workout for today so that we are you know, injury-free, we are maximally recovered, we are as ready to go as possible for tomorrow. So that's also a good mentality to have. And then for humidity, how would you change the protocol? Like, would you, I mean, you go in a steam room, but what about your training? Because you can't really like make your house more humid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, not unless you like a lot of mold in your house too. The good news is that the type of heat adaptation that you do, whether it's, you know, in a sauna or in a steam room, 
it will get you heat adapted no matter what condition you're ultimately going to face. And there's only been one study looking at this. It was done uh, by an Israeli researcher in 1997, and she had three types of heat adaptation. She had a hot and dry heat adaptation of two weeks. Then she also had a warm and humid adaptation and then another one where it was normal room temperature but the it was a really high kind of um solar load so it was really high radiative she basically had kind of the heat lamps going on uh on individuals so the overall thermal stress on them was similar in terms of the wet bulb globe temperature which is an index encompassing temperature, humidity, solar radiation. And uh, she had them for two weeks, then she tested them again. She found similar levels of adaptation in all three groups, and then she flipped them around. She had the, the hot and dry group go in the warm and humid environment. She also had the warm and humid go in the hot and dry environment, and they found even though they adapted in one condition, they still responded equally well to another condition. So that, again, leads me to my pragmatic approach is don't really worry. You know, if you can, if you are adapting for Tokyo, you know, with, again, with my work with the Canadian national athletes, yeah, then ideally, if you can adapt to warm and humid, that's great. But if you can't, don't sweat it. See what I did there? But... <laughs> So the main thing, again, is get your body hot and keep it hot because your physiological responses are going to be the same. You're going to sweat a lot more and you know that's the main stimulus that you want. And I have two questions left. The next one is, should you be trying to keep your core temperature warmer at all times when you're not exercising? Like in our house, we have the temperature turned up and I've been trying to wear extra layers in the house where I just feel a little bit warmer all the time. Is that helpful or is that just like pointless? Uh, I'll help you save some heating bills and uh, say no, you, uh, <laughs> you probably don't need it. Again, this goes back to the difference between acclimation and acclimatization. There's climatization, again, is if you are in a natural warm environment 24-7. There's not really that much difference between the two, provided your acclimation protocol is sufficient. Again, if it drives your body temperature hot enough and if it gets you stimulated and uh, maintain that temperature for long enough. Obviously, you don't want to do a heat adaptation program and then you know, go winter camping the rest of the day, right? Because yeah, then that's not going to be effective because then you're not really keeping your body at a normal temperature throughout. But the rest of the time, just keep your body temperature warm. And, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily feel you need to crank uh, the temperature up. Again, this is different from altitude training. Altitude training, you really need not just in a way, kind of that one hour, two hour exposure to altitude, you really need ideally to spend as much of the day there as possible. So this is where heat is different from altitude. Do altitude tends actually work? If you're able to hang out in them for long enough to really make it effective, and by long enough, I mean ideally, you know, 16 hours or more a day, then yes. But sleeping in them, it's for your eight hours, Probably not. Again, the ideal is really to live at altitude for as long as possible because it is that constant stimulus that is forcing your your body to generate more red blood cells. So that 
kind of that shorter term, that hypoxic stimulus, and even being in hypoxia while training by itself isn't really effective because it's just not a long enough stimulus. Okay. And my last question is about females because during your menstrual cycle and your hormonal changes, your body can deal with heat in different ways. So should there be any difference in protocol for women? I'd love to be able to give you an answer, but (laughs) unfortunately, as with many uh, scientific studies, especially in temperature regulation or in different environments, there's relatively little work done on females. Again, when uh, my colleague Chris Tyler and I, we did a big review of all of the existing literature on heat adaptation studies, and you know, this was spanning 60 years or more, we totaled of all of the studies in terms of participants around um, uh, around a thousand participants in all of these studies and eight percent were female so uh, again it's a huge gap absolutely the menstrual cycle would have an effect on the hormones on all the uh, fluid retention pathways and the uh, aldosterone vasopressin all of those hormones too so it's really unknown this when we did kind of objectively try to analyze all of those studies of those uh, when we looked at you know the females there didn't seem to be a difference in terms of their main big picture responses and the time frame but again we're dealing with very few studies and participants so that's actually some of the work that my phd student my new phd student kate wickham and i are planning on doing is looking at specifically sex differences in thermal regulation both in the heat and the cold and also ideally with adaptation too and uh we're also working with wrestling canada developing some projects dealing again with females and their responses with heat adaptation with an eye again for Tokyo next year. Cool. Looking forward to seeing some of that research. I see what you did there with cool also. That's another (laughs) uh, podcast altogether. All right. Yes. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And where can people get in touch with you or find your work? Uh, Well, again, I'm I can be found at Brock University in my real time when I'm not on sabbatical, but I can be found on Facebook, Stephen Chung, and also on uh, Twitter, and my handle is at EELBrock. So EEL stands for Environmental Ergonomics Lab, Brock. So those are the uh, main ways to find me. Great. Well, thank you so much. Great having this opportunity to chat, and it was worth the trip to Kelowna. All right. Just came for me. That was so awesome to get to talk to somebody who has done the research, who's read all the meta-analyses, who's worked with Olympic-level cyclists and runners to just understand more about heat adaptation training. And I feel like I'm not really an expert in this subject, but I've spent a lot of time reading about it and talking to people. And it's pretty cool that you can really add that in as a way to just get better and prepare. I've seen my performance drop, uh, as I mentioned, from heat. And also you'll hear in next week's episode with Luke Way and Stacey Shand, I did a physiology assessment with them 
using the VO2 master, which was mentioned with Dr. Andrew Sellers. We talked about respiratory training and that type of thing. And it actually measures your exhale temperature. So this was back in early December and it showed that heat was a major weakness for me. So that's something I actually started working on before Cape Epic because I saw how badly unadapted I was to the heat. So it'll be fun to see how this plays out at the Cape Epic and beyond. And I hope that you guys learned a lot. And if you have questions, again, you can reach out to Dr. Stephen Chung on Facebook, on Twitter. You can send me messages. We love to help in any way that we can. If you found this show helpful, please leave a review or share the show with your friends. And hey, you can even post something that you learned about heat adaptation training. And make sure you hit subscribe so that you can get next week's episode with Luke and Stacey. Luke, we have we talk about my protocol that I'm doing specifically in the next episode. And we also get to hear from Stacy about how your shoes melt whenever you're racing Badwater, the running race in Death Valley, and a lot more. For me, I'm just trying to get recovered from the 24 hours of Old Pueblo. I started off pretty like feeling actually pretty good when I came home. And then over the course of last week, I just got more tired and more tired. So I actually took three days completely off the bike and three days off of heat training. And I'm trying to get back in and just see how it goes. But right now, the most important thing for me is making sure that I'm fully recovered. And that is the hardest thing as an athlete, because I know that I have a massive stage race coming up, the Cape Epic with very little time left to train. But I also know that I have to recover from this 24 hour race. So making sure that I am recovered, that I'm not only halfway recovered and then getting back in training, getting more tired and then never being optimal for Cape Epic is my number one focus right now. So hopefully you guys can relate with that and understand how important recovery is because a lot of times we don't let ourselves fully recover. And I think that that is one of the biggest mistakes that endurance athletes make. I've been racing for 15 years and I've definitely had my issues with overtraining in the past. And I, I think that I've mostly got it figured out now. Of course, the body's always changing and events are always different with different conditions, but just being aware and having the courage to rest as they say in the book, peak performance, have the courage to rest. So that's kind of my mantra. All right, guys, thanks so much for coming to the show, for subscribing, for listening and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.